I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible.com, and my recommendation is Gentleman of the Road by Michael Chabon. Historical fiction set around the time of 10th century Byzantium. Pick it up for free at audibletrial.com forward slash TV critic. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 121, The Roman Army, in 900 AD. Last episode, we discussed the growth of landed magnates across Anatolia. One of the positives of this development was that the Roman army had experienced, motivated commanders to take them on the offensive. Today we need to cover all the other changes within the Roman military across the last hundred years. Once you've absorbed those, you will be fully prepared to enjoy the coming century of Byzantine brilliance. As usual, we need to return to the Emperor Nicephorus, who was not only in charge back in 802 AD, but also reformed everything he could get his hands on. As you may recall, the Vasilefs secured a peace treaty with the Caliphate and then took on the Bulgars with all the energy he could muster. Though this culminated in the disaster at Pliska, prior to that, Nicephorus had enacted some very significant reforms. The emperor had ordered families from across Anatolia, including whole regiments of soldiers, to move to Europe. Once there, he found lands for them and registered them with the local army. Though unpopular, the placement of these troops in Greece and Thrace was a success. The themes of the area held firm for the next century. They maintained their territorial integrity and began the conversion and Romanization of the local Slav populations. As I mentioned at the time, What Nicephorus did was probably create the first actual themes, as in provinces defended by a locally supported army. Let's back up for one second. 
The first reference to the themes comes from our old friend Theophanes when talking about Heraclius. Just before the emperor left on his six-year campaign against the Sassanids, he gathered his army and put them through their paces. Theophanes claims that he gathered his men in the land of the themes. Scholars of the early 20th century and before speculated that Heraclius himself had created the theme system. Recognizing the dire situation he was in, the emperor found new headquarters for his forces in Anatolia. This is not true. Heraclius fully believed that the old order could be restored, and for five years after the war, it was. It was only after defeat by the Arabs that he pulled his men back into Anatolia to guard what remained of the empire. But although I joined most historians in calling these armies the themes, it's probably the case that this is an anachronism. The names of the armies did indeed become Thracision, Obsikion, Anatolikon, and so on, but those are simply the names of the commands. To be commander of the Anatolikon just meant that you were the general of the former army of the East. In terms of administration, throughout the 7th and 8th centuries, the existing provincial boundaries were maintained and justice and taxation operated at that level. Of course, as these regions were often active war zones, it was only natural that the local Stratihos would become a powerful figure, probably able to interfere in local affairs with little difficulty, but there isn't much evidence that he had a formal role in these matters until the 9th century. One of the Emperor Nicephorus's concerns was that soldiers were slipping off the military rolls. Heraclius had reintroduced conscription, insisting that fathers pass their commission on to their sons. But of course, if you didn't have a son, then the army has to recruit a new soldier. And if this happens too often, a commander might find himself drastically undermanned at a critical time. So, legislation was introduced that a family installed on the military register must provide a soldier. It didn't have to be a member of their immediate family. It didn't need to be a relative. But they owed the state a recruit, equipped and fit for service. To outfit a soldier cost money. And to lose an able-bodied farmhand did as well. Again, the system led to families becoming impoverished or trying to abandon their obligation any way they could. Nicephorus's solution was to tie the obligation to a specific community. He was asking families to uproot from Anatolia and move to Greece. They might have to cultivate unused land and it could take many years to create profitable farms. So he spread the burden of upkeep across several families. Now, a small village community collectively owe the state one soldier, and they are responsible for his tax burden if he has to leave his farm. As usual with the former general logothete schemes, this was a clever, successful, and resented policy. 
Modern historians like John Halden and Leslie Brubaker argue that this was the creation of the actual theme system as we think of it. The term themata comes from the verb to place, to deposit, to set down or to assign. It seems logical then that the idea of a locally recruited army whose jurisdiction conformed with the local provincial administration originates here, when Nicephorus set down and assigned these armies their new role in Thrace. Officials now appear in the record as part of a new theme administration. A protonarios would manage the finances, a praetor would be in charge of justice, and a cagularios would handle administration, all reporting to the strategos, who would effectively be governor of his theme. This new system of administration was rolled out across the empire over the next few decades. So the Anatolikon would now become an actual province, thus placing even more power in the hands of the regional magnates who dominated those big Anatolian themes. Our historian Theophanes finished his history a short while after Nicephorus's death. Presumably, this is why he referred to Heraclius gathering men in the lands of the themes, because he knew his readers would identify which areas of Anatolia had been fitted out with the new arrangements. For the purposes of today's episode, what you need to know is that Nicephorus's system successfully filled the ranks of the army for another century. But the return of prosperity meant that by 912 AD, Romans everywhere were taking advantage of a loophole in the system. In theory, if a village community could literally provide no able-bodied men to serve, then they would be required to hand over the cost of his service to the government. In other words, the money that would have paid for his equipment, his horse, and his tax was paid to the local strategos in compensation. Well, with the growth of wealthy estates across the empire, rich men looked at this option and said, fine, take the money. In many cases, they would rather keep good workers on their estates and just send the cash. Local families were happy to keep their sons at home, and this may have been an extra motivation for peasant farmers to sell up to their local magnate. Common sense should tell us the pros and cons of this arrangement. On the one hand, it can lead to a better army. The Stratikos can use the money to hire mercenary soldiers, who are better trained and tougher than many local recruits. No problem. But over time, the military preparedness of the local community would disappear. So when the day comes that the interior of Anatolia is under threat again, who would be ready to defend it? We will be talking about this issue a lot over the coming two centuries, so I will leave it there for now. Back in episode 112, I talked about the expansion of the Byzantines into the Armenian borderlands. I've now updated the map with new themes, 
which extended into this former no-man's land. Details on when exactly each was founded and what form their administration took is sketchy. So we'll just have to agree that each of these regions had a commander paid by the government in Constantinople by 920-ish AD. I've actually put up three different maps to give you an idea of the new disposition. In the north, the Armenia Khan now has three forward positions, as it were, in Chaldea, Colonea, and Sebasteia. Beyond them, they'd even established a Klesura of Mesopotamia, when the local Armenian lord accepted Roman gold. This gave the empire an ally whose territory extended east beyond the Arab city of Melitene, a very useful position. Further south, and three newer provinces now shared the burden of border with the Anatolikon. These were the themes of Charsianan, Cappadocia, and Seleucia. They all faced the Taurus Mountains and invasions from Cilicia. Beyond them was the new theme of Lycandos, which we discussed back in episode 112. These are the mountains bordering Melitene itself, which the resourceful Armenian lord Melias controlled. None of this will be easy to imagine unless you have a look at the map, but it should fit in your mind with the theme of this end-of-the-century series. The Romans are using their growing resources to pay enterprising border barons to make their territory available. The empire is slowly encircling the Arab emirates. Like a snake coiling around its victim, the Byzantines have begun the choke, which will yield the desired result about halfway through the 10th century. I toured the western provinces last century, and not a huge amount has changed since. There are a few more subdivisions of the existing themes, but I don't think it's particularly helpful for me to describe them here. Check out the maps. I've put one up from John Haldon's Atlas for you, if you really want to know where the theme of Nicopolis is. In southern Italy, though, it's worth pointing out the new theme of Langobardia. The name was an acknowledgement that much of its territory was inhabited by Lombards. Last century, the Byzantines held no more than the heel and toe, but they are now pushing up towards the ankle. This success was the result of Lombard fragmentation in the face of Frankish power. And this was not a theme established on the same principles as those nearer Constantinople, the local Lombard chiefs had accepted Byzantine suzerainty to avoid domination by other Lombards. The extent of the Stratikos' control very much depended on his diplomatic skills. Tax exemptions were granted to Lombard-held cities who cooperated, and occasional tribute payments had to be made to the Sicilian Arabs to fend off raids. It was a precariously held territory, but one which protected Byzantine interests in the area, including trade and the hope that one day the reconquest of Sicily might be possible. Within the narrative, we've spied a few other important changes. Both Nicephorus and Michael of Amorium created new units of the Tachmata, 
presumably because they felt a little insecure about the influence wielded by the existing core. This trend toward a personal guard for new emperors will continue. We also saw the leading Tachmatic commander, the domestic of the Skolai, grow into the army's commander-in-chief. We saw this clearly when Michael III was a boy and Uncle Bardas led most of the campaigns. Though he did venture out himself, Basil too was happy to let leading magnates do most of the commanding for him, and of course Leo VI chose never to go on campaign, handing even more power to the domestic. The decision for emperors to campaign less in person is a significant one. When our podcast began, it was the norm, even when generals like Tiberius and Maurice were on the throne. But Heraclius had to take charge of the army, and that set a precedent which almost all his successors followed. The move back to a palace-bound emperor is a reflection of the growing security of the government. With less raids, more victories, and increased prosperity, it was easier to maintain a sense of legitimacy. Despite the messiness of Basil's rise to power, outside of the capital it probably felt like the same dynasty had been in power since the end of the civil war between Michael and Thomas the Slav. Leo's homebody routine set a new precedent, which would be followed by many of his successors. And though it will do little harm to the empire's expansion, it will allow the magnate families to increase their influence over the soldiers of the Eastern Front, a conflict of interest which, as we discussed last week, will play out repeatedly in the future. The weapon the emperors used to ensure some loyalty was, of course, cold hard cash. Theophilus gave the troops a pay rise after the sack of Amorium, in part because the expanding treasury allowed it, but also because he recognised a lack of motivation amongst them, which he hoped this would solve. We also saw the Kuramites join the ranks under his rule, and Basil created a new naval squadron to help tackle Arab piracy. Most of the specific innovations which will aid the Byzantine reconquest don't come into play until halfway through the next century. But it seems that there was an increase in the availability of cavalry on the frontier in the latter part of the century. Historian Warren Treadgold attributes the switch to Leo VI and a specific plan of how to organise the new border provinces. But it seems possible that this was more to do with the wealth of the landed magnates. Their control of large herds probably increased the availability of horses, and their sponsored retinues meant there were more experienced cavalry officers available. I had thought about following up last century's House of War episode with another fantasy about a soldier in the borderlands. However, the situation is not dissimilar enough to warrant it. I felt then that some listeners needed a colourful illustration to fully understand the change in the Roman army's approach. In 900 AD, though, those tactics remain in place. They are just being executed with greater skill and enthusiasm. 
We know this not only from the historical record, but from a military treatise called On Skirmishing, which was commissioned by future emperor Nicephorus Phocas. Nicephorus will be one of the great Byzantine conquerors, but he also showed wisdom in asking a friend to commit to writing the tactics which had served his family so well. By the time the work was finished, the Byzantines had little use for its lessons, as they were on the assault beyond the mountains, but the author points out that these tactics may be useful again in the future. You may remember from the House of War that the army's tactics were all about shadowing and counterattacking. A century ago, a large Arab force would probably not even be confronted, whereas in On Skirmishing, the author reveals a far more aggressive approach to hitting the enemy unawares. First, he says that in the unlikely event that both your cavalry and infantry have assembled quickly, and that the enemy raiding party is small, then you can take them on in pitched battle immediately. In the more typical circumstance that the Arabs are in your lands before all your men have mustered, then it's on to plan B. Seize the high ground, seize the water supplies, and begin shadowing. Scouting is key. Not only should scouts be paid, provisioned, and relieved regularly, but you should also interview merchants, travellers, and deserters as soon as you come across them. Even send gift baskets to the local emirs. Hopefully the merchants carrying them will learn what the likely line of attack is going to be that summer. Once your full force has gathered, you can think about assaulting the enemy camp. As the goal of the Arabs is to gather loot, they will spend most of the day out looking for villages. If you can destroy their campsite and steal their baggage, then you will have scored a major victory. Deprived of their beds and supplies, their morale will plummet, and most likely they will retreat. If they are defending their camp well during their journey, then consider a night attack, though the position of the moon is important in whether this can be achieved. The author is clear that you should never commit so many men to an attack that it might lead to total defeat. But, with clever ambushes in place, you can attack with fewer men and claim the same victory. When your attacking force is driven off by the defenders, they flee, and the Arabs may be drawn into a pursuit where they will rush into your concealed reserves who will cut them down. Another tactic is to work out where the Arabs are likely to make camp next. Get there first and slaughter the scouts sent ahead to set up. Of course, the men of Melitene and Tarsus are no dummies. They too use similar tactics. So the author recommends that the Stratihos changes his own camp twice a day if necessary to avoid their scouts from finding him. Using local forts to store supplies and equipment is key. And above all, the same rule applies that was vital to the House of War episode. The best time to attack the enemy is when they are returning home carrying stolen goods. That is when they will be moving slowly, tired and anxious to get home. 
the goods they are carrying and the livestock they are pushing along make them more susceptible to being ambushed. Awareness of these conditions certainly informed Roman decision-making as they went on the offensive. Hence the heavy investment in Armenian allies who could help scout and supply Byzantine forces in the mountains. Over in the Balkans, there hasn't yet been a major change in the tactics used to combat the Bulgars, but there's an interesting bit of diplomatic information I can pass on from Leo VI's Tactica. The Bulgarians were now a Christian nation, and at least to some extent they were seen as Byzantine clients. When Leo published his military manual then, it would have been undiplomatic to include passages describing how best to defeat them in battle. So the emperor resorted to a bit of cunning wordplay. In the text he says there is no need to fight their brothers in Christ anymore, but he includes many details on how to handle the Magyars and Pechenegs, and several times in passing <coughs> mentions that they fight just like the Bulgars do. This bit of pious deception, as John Chrysostom might have called it, leads us nicely into a couple of listener questions. Listener MB asks, in what way did the ascendancy of Christianity influence Byzantine military strategies such as avoiding pitched battles? While listener ZB expands on this idea and wonders whether the sophisticated intellectual debates of the Byzantine church had a knock-on effect on their approach to diplomacy. Questions of this kind have come up before, and I think that we're all at a disadvantage from not having had end-of-the-century type episodes from the history of Rome. And I don't mean that as a knock on that wonderful show. Uh, what I mean is that I suspect these questions are inspired partly because of the gulf that lies between the all-conquering Roman army of Trajan and before, and then the Strategicon of Maurice, where we explored the Byzantine emphasis on avoiding attritional warfare. Um, this gap in our knowledge leads to the feeling that it was Christianity or Constantinople which turned the Romans from iron men of war into watchful, cautious creatures. I'm afraid I don't have the time now to research the whole history of the Roman army and elaborate on this thought, but my answer would be that although Christianity undoubtedly affected warfare just as it touched every other aspect of Byzantine life, I don't believe it made a significant enough difference to warrant singling it out. The Byzantines were surrounded by hostile powers from 476 to 1453. If they'd remained determinedly pagan, I believe they would still have developed the policy of avoiding pitched battles. They had to. They didn't have enough men not to. Similarly, Byzantine diplomacy was subtle and cunning at times because of circumstance. Listener ZB brings up the specific instance of Khan Simeon demanding retranslations of a peace treaty because he feared linguistic duplicity. In that particular case, I think Simeon may have been playing for time, using the fact that he'd been raised in Constantinople, could speak Greek, and was therefore in a position to question legalistic wording. 
But the real context of conflict between the Bulgars and the Romans is not about complex theological or intellectual ideas. It's about the unresolvable tension between the two sides, which I discussed back in episode 115. Simeon couldn't force a peace treaty on the Romans because he didn't have the resources to threaten Constantinople. And yet Leo could not force a peace on the Bulgars because his armies had to stay in Anatolia. This standoff would have ensued no matter the religious persuasion of the empire. In a narrow sense, I think the political culture of Constantinople was more peace-minded than that of Imperial Rome. But again, I think that's because of circumstance rather than faith. When it came to the practicalities of war, Byzantine soldiers behaved like any other. In the treatise on skirmishing, which we just discussed, the author asserts that if you've taken prisoners but need to keep tracking a group of raiders, then just kill them and move on. He is unapologetic about sacking, ravaging, and stealing, just as the enemy do. I don't want to dismiss Christianity's impact. We've talked about blindings and mutilations as an example of applying thou shalt not kill to high-stakes politics. And certainly there are more positive changes to point out. But in answering these specific questions, I would steer away from seeing religion as the main determinant for military and diplomatic tactics. We will come back to this topic in our narrative, though. Nicephorus' focus in particular will question aloud whether the Romans should adopt a jihad-style attitude in their wars with the Muslims. Listener R asked about this, but we will all have to wait until we get there. Our final question comes from listener MC, who wonders how the Byzantines didn't know about the attack on Thessalonica in 904 AD. He's surprised that the empire's spy network didn't catch it, and that the people of the city didn't have their defenses in ideal condition. I think several things should be clarified here. Uh, There was no Byzantine spy network in the way we might think of it. There was no Byzantine James Bond. Um, In a world of personal ties where many people worked in the same job all their lives, a stranger appearing and asking questions would have aroused suspicion immediately. Byzantine espionage was limited to the people they came into contact with in the course of their daily lives. So deserters, prisoners, pilgrims, merchants, anyone who had just come from the enemy's land, if they knew something useful, great, but it's entirely possible that they knew nothing, or knew something misleading, or that they would lie. Perhaps the Romans knew that a big fleet was being assembled, but even if they were told that Thessalonica was its target, they would still have kept their fleet defending Constantinople because it was a far more valuable place. The intelligence could be wrong, so why would you take that chance? As for the Thessalonican walls, which had been damaged by an earthquake, I suspect this was a case of poverty more than laziness. Probably the Thessalonicans would have imported bricks and other supplies to repair the walls, and they just couldn't afford to snap them up immediately. It's possible that men were out acquiring the materials when news came that a huge enemy fleet was in the Aegean. At that point, sailing back was impossible anyway. 
It was a series of unfortunate developments, including a knowledgeable enemy commander. Remember that Leo of Tripoli was an ex-Byzantine. It's possible that he captured some local Romans and heard from them that the city walls were damaged, thus encouraging his assault. That's it for today. Next time it will be all your questions as we bring our end of the century series to a close. After that it will be recap and precap time and then in January we will be back to the narrative. If you enjoy fictional tales of Byzantine-era soldiers, though, then Steve Guerra of the History of the Papacy podcast has a recommendation for you. He says that the novel Gentlemen of the Road by Michael Chabon is well worth a read. It's about two Jewish mercenaries looking for their fortune in the Caucasus. They get swept up in the chaotic world of Khazar politics around 950 AD, and you can get it for free right now at audible.com. It's narrated by Andre Brower of Homicide and Brooklyn Nine-Nine fame, amongst many other credits. Get it for free and support this show by going to audibletrial.com forward slash tvcritic. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.